This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia.
is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world, more than radio. It's your listener-sponsored community radio, your imagination station, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, on the dial but off the radar. And this is Radio Orbit. Coming to you every Monday night from 11 p.m. until 2 a.m. in the morning. Tonight, no different, although next week it will be different because I'm going to be gone for the week, taking a little bit bit of vacation. I'm going back to Colorado to see uh, some friends and take a little bit of time off from my regular work. And I was... uh, for 15 years living in Colorado. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that on the air or not, but I have a lot of history there and a lot of friends there and lots of things to do and people to see, so I'm really excited to be able to go back to uh, Denver and spend some time there with the people that I'm close to. So anyway, I'll be gone next week, and somebody else will be doing the show. I'm not exactly sure who, but I'll try to put something together uh, that uh, will be worthwhile that they can play and talk with you all about. So that's coming up next week. Not sure exactly, but uh, I'll try to do something interesting, okay? All right. Um, tonight, I uh, I wasn't sure what I was going to do tonight because I didn't have an interview lined up. Um, although this afternoon, I did I recorded an interview with Dr. Ralph Abraham, somebody who I've really been uh, anticipating talking to for a long time and really excited that I got it done this afternoon. So anyway, I talked to Dr. Ralph Abraham this afternoon, and we had a real enlightening, at least for me, uh, conversation and an interesting talk. And I'll get that edited and air that sometime in the next few weeks or whatever. But anyway, I thought tonight that uh, because I was thinking of Ralph that I would I would air um, a uh, a piece with uh that features Ralph and uh, Rupert Sheldrake and Terence McKenna are also included in this piece it's another one of the trialogues i've played one piece of one of the older trialogues from i think 1989 i think i've played that in the past but this is a more recent one from 1998 actually and it features uh Dr. Ralph Abraham Dr. Rupert Sheldrake and Terence McKenna honorary doctor even though he used to laugh at the degree Anyway, so uh, that's coming up. I'll play that in about an hour. It's only about an hour long, and and we'll only break once in between it, so we'll have some time afterwards to maybe take some phone calls and talk about it or uh, play some music, whatever uh, whatever sort of suits, depending on what you guys are up for. Uh, but I will open the phone lines after the talk with uh, Terrence and Rupert and Ralph, and if anybody has any conversation they'd like to share about that we can talk about it after the presentation okay all right uh before that we'll do what we always do we'll do uh space weather and i'll talk a little bit about some guests that are coming up some real interesting stuff coming up over the next months and i've had an amazing week some really interesting and strange things and synchronistic things have happened uh, a real quick uh thanks to debbie johnson as always doing a great job on free range radio theater Jason and Kelvin, of course, before Debbie, kicking out the blues and jazz as they do every Monday. I love Monday nights, actually, and I'm proud to be a part of this uh, lineup on Monday night. But, uh, of course, before them, Tech Radio, 
the guys uh, doing tech radio, Justin and John, I think it is. But uh, uh, if you ever have questions about your computers or technology, those guys are all over it. And I always, I actually find myself calling them and uh, getting a lot of help from them myself. So anyway, lots of cool stuff going on Monday night. The Boogeyman, Curtis, coming up after me at 2 o'clock. And uh, we'll keep it going. 24-7, KOPN, doing the best we can here and uh, with people just like you. So if you're interested in the station, uh, you can always think about coming down here and volunteering your time uh, or your money. <laughs> We're always willing to accept... Uh, any of those two things. The station is a community station that's run by your donations and your volunteer hours, people like me and lots of other other people around here that volunteer their time to do the programs and to do all the other things that it takes to keep this station on the air. So if you're interested and you like what you hear and you want to be more involved, uh, feel free to come on down here anytime, 915 East Broadway, and your help is uh, always welcome and appreciated. All right, at any rate, uh, tonight we'll talk, uh, or we won't talk, but we'll listen in as uh, Terrence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake talk about uh, the edge of the millennium. And this is uh, from a perspective of 1998. However, the idea of the millennium doesn't necessarily have to do with uh, years. In other words, the year 2000 was a millennial event numerically, but millennialism is uh, a concept that uh, uh, is more philosophical as opposed to uh, uh, dealing with the actual count of years. But anyway, that's not that big of a thing to talk about right now. So we'll just move along. All right, my cat, we have this cat, and I don't know if I told the story on the air, but... Uh, She's sort of a barn cat, and we never acquired her by any means other than the fact that she sort of adopted us. And she was pregnant and had kittens about three months ago. Eh, maybe, maybe four or five months ago. I'm not sure exactly, but maybe four months ago, something like that. And she was really young herself, and she had had these kittens in our garage in this little abandoned dog house that's underneath uh, this old part of our garage but at any rate the uh we didn't really we we sort of just uh let nature take its course to see what would happen and none of the kittens survived it was a real strange thing and I, we my wife and I felt really bad because uh all of the kittens uh, died and I we didn't know if uh, if we call her Puss but I don't know if Puss abandoned them or if they were sick or if there was something wrong uh, you know from the beginning of her pregnancy or whatever at any rate it was sort of a bummer and and we felt bad even though she wasn't our cat she just sort of lives there on our property so anyway very shortly thereafter uh, Puss uh, Puss got pregnant again and that's a whole nother story. Uh, she's just a whore, you know. But at any rate, um, she got pregnant again, and she had her babies uh, four weeks ago, just about four weeks ago. She had five kittens. And here we go again, and we were just like, oh, my God, you know, what what are we going to do? So she had the kittens in the same spot in this uh, uh, this abandoned doghouse that's down 
in this corner of our garage underneath. I mean, it's like, you know, it's sort of difficult to get to, obviously, because it's still there. And the people that I bought the house from or that we bought the house from um, had it there. And, and I've yet to go under there and clean it out and get all that stuff out of there. That's That shows you that it's, uh, it's sort of out of the way. But at any rate, five kittens. She has five kittens. And this time the kittens look really good and everything's cool. And, and uh, they're moving around and she's feeding them. And, and we felt much better about the whole deal. Well, after about three days or so, we... Uh, the kittens seemed to be doing fine. We would go peek in on them, you know, in the morning and in the evening. And, you know, we weren't messing with them by any means. but just would go look in on them every once in a while. And they appeared to be doing fine. So after about three days, we decided that we had this bright idea that we would uh, uh, take the doghouse out of uh, this little nook where it was, uh, where it had been. And I would put it up on the... Uh, one of the sort of workbench tables on the side of uh, that's attached to the side of the garage on the inside of the garage, so we would have easier access and we could see them easier. And if we wanted to bring some milk or whatever, uh, you know, so we do this. So I go in there and I pull out the uh, the 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 doghouse, and the kittens are fine. And I put them up on I put the whole thing up on this counter. So the next morning, we go out there, and and they're all gone. All the kittens are gone. And they're like three days old now, all right? And we can't believe it, and we think, oh, my God, you know, because there are foxes that run around where we live and owls and uh, raccoons and uh, skunks and all kinds of critters, hawks and, anyway, lots of... Uh, uh, lot, lot, lots of predators and lots of prey, so to speak. So my wife was brokenhearted, and we felt really bad. I didn't know what to do. You know, it was sort of like a lesson, like, oh, my God, don't move it. You know, if everything's cool, you know, Puss knew exactly what she was doing as a mother uh, to take care of her baby. She put them right where she wanted them and all that sort of thing. <clears throat> and we decided that we would have the bright idea of moving them <clears throat> and changing that whole situation. So, at any rate, uh, that was four weeks ago, plus or minus. Well, on Saturday morning, and, and for the last three and a half weeks, you know, we basically have tried to forget about the whole thing, but uh, it's been sort of a bummer. And uh, uh, anyway, on Saturday, my dog, and you've heard me talk about the dogs before, but anyway, our dog, one of our dogs, Maisie, she is going crazy. She's outside. It's like 6.30 in the morning. I let the dogs out like 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. We get up pretty early. So anyway, they're outside at 6.30 in the morning, and Maisie is just going crazy. And I'm laying in bed, and I'm trying, you know, to get a valuable moment of sleep, uh, one extra minute or something. You know, it's very valuable uh, these days for everybody, I think, because time is moving so quickly, and uh, so much is being jammed in to such a, a limited amount of time and space. It appears that the pressure is just building. So at any rate, I'm just laying there wishing for sleep, and, and the dog will not stop barking. So I finally get up and go outside, walk around the house, and, oh, my God, there's like this little kitten 
right there, and Maisie is barking, going crazy uh, at this little kitten. And uh, I get the dog out of there and realize that the kittens are alive. And uh, what happened was Puss moved them, and she had created a new little den underneath these sort of railroad ties that are used for landscaping uh, all around our house. And she had found a place underneath a couple of railroad ties that were, again, was very... Uh, sort of difficult to see if you're just walking by or whatever. You would never even notice it because it's sort of on the back side, but uh, right by the house and not very far from us at all. And amazing that our dogs, which are uh, uh, a, a mix of Labrador Retriever and some sort of hound dog, were able uh, to, to not uh, smell or recognize that these uh, kittens were there for three weeks, three and a half weeks, uh, that they went unnoticed. So anyway, uh, there you have it. It was a wonderful story. The kittens are alive and well. They're much bigger now. They're running around. Of course, that's why they were finally discovered is because they decided to start to venture out from their little den. And they're okay. And there are only four of them. Uh, the fifth, not sure what exactly happened, but the fifth one did not make it. Uh, but four out of five did, and they're healthy and uh, really fun and running around, driving my dogs absolutely crazy, but uh, uh, healthy. And their mom, Puss, is doing good, too. So there's a neat story and a fun story about nature with a little tragedy thrown in as well uh, and just sort of the way the world works on many different levels. So I wanted to share that with you. And I'm going to share another story with you when I come back in just a few minutes. I've got a lot of things to talk about tonight, but I wanted to share some of the personal things that are happening in my life uh, because they were sort of cool. Anyway, coming up, another interesting story about Dr. Michael Heisen. If you remember Michael, he's been on the show with uh, his partner, Paradise Newland, and we talk about dolphins and whales and communication and language and all that sort of stuff when he's on the show. But I've got a, a wonderful story about... Uh, uh, Dr. Heisen that happened just over the last week too so I'll tell you about that in just a minute and in the meantime here's some new music this is Orbital uh, not that new actually but uh, new for this program certainly and the song is called The Mobius we'll be back in just a few minutes this is Mike you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM there is the theory of the Mobius a twist in the fabric of space where time becomes a loop Oh, 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 oh,
Whatever happened will happen again. Orbital, uh, with a song called uh, The Mobius. <laughs> cool stuff. And this is Mike. You're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit. And I mentioned that I wanted to tell you a story about Michael Heisen. I'll do that real quick here before we do space weather. But um, uh, I guess it was last Wednesday or so. I got a call from Dr. Heisen, and he and I are from the same hometown. We're both from Rockford, Illinois. This place up in northern uh, northern Illinois, about 75 miles northwest of uh, of Chicago. So anyway, uh, Dr. Heisen and I were both born in Rockford, and he grew up in a little town called Winnebago. That's just a uh, just a stone's throw from Rockford. So anyway, we're we're, we're sort of hometown. Uh, Guys, and we know each other uh, now, uh, not having known each other back then, and uh, sort of interesting 
uh, to find all the commonalities uh, in our lives. But at any rate, he gave me a call, and he was in Rockford uh, or in Winnebago, actually, visiting his parents there. And uh, we were just talking, and he, he, he had mentioned that uh, he may try to get a hold of my dad and uh, that he was asking if I knew anybody in the media there and blah, blah, blah. And we were just chatting about a bunch of stuff and reminiscing about Rockford and the and the hometown area there. And anyway, there's this... I had just been back in Rockford in July, about a month ago. Actually, exactly a month ago. On the 15th was my dad's birthday. And there was a, uh, all of the rage in town in Rockford, Illinois, uh, was this scientific exhibition of a Tyrannosaurus Rex fossil that was being displayed at one of the museums there in Rockford. Now, Rockford is sort of this uh, uh, industrial town uh, that about 20 years ago was sort of on the leading edge of the death of industry in the United States of America. Uh, and there were big manufacturers there, but now uh, not a lot going on, and it's sort of been... Oh, I don't know, depressed is probably too strong of a word to use, but but just sort of uh, uh just sort of floating in the in the ether and not really doing really well and not and and just sort of getting by. So, at any rate, uh, Rockford's always been looking to get on the map for this or that or the other thing and uh, all of a sudden they have this dinosaur and the dinosaur's called Jane and it's a big deal and there's people writing about it all over the country all of a sudden in fact there was a story in the new york times about it and it was of course in all the chicago papers and rockford was on the map now for this uh this collection of 300 million year old bones in the shape of a killer dinosaur and i was thinking about this as I was talking to Dr. Heisen and he asked if I knew anyone in the media and I said no I don't uh, actually and I said you know and it's unbelievable that I don't and it's unbelievable that he didn't uh, and I was thinking about this dinosaur and I thought that you know as cool as that is and I appreciate the science behind it and I appreciate the uh, the the, uh, the interest that people have in in the deep past but at the same time, I couldn't believe when I thought about it how a guy like Michael Heisen has done the work that he's done over all these years. And it's amazing, actually, what the guy has done. If, you've, if, you, if, you, if you haven't ever had a chance to, to look at the bio for Dr. Michael Heisen, I mean, go look at his bio. You, you, you think, how old is this guy? How, how old must he be in order to have done all of these things? It's just outrageous. So, at any rate, uh, I was sort of lamenting the fact that the way our culture is and the way society is, is that a guy or girl, uh, and, and uh, there are many, many examples of women uh, that fall into the same category here, uh, but that have done amazing things and have made great progress in their particular fields and have gone unrecognized even in the places where they are from the places where they grew up and so 
I was talking to Michael about this, and I said, you know, it's amazing that, you know, Rockford is all excited about the bones of this dinosaur, and yet here you are uh, with your accomplishments, real time, stuff that's relevant today, stuff that could be really, really helpful uh, to uh, individuals, certainly, but perhaps to our species overall, the stuff that, that, that Paradise and Michael are working on. And others, you know, they're, 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 just, they're just two in a group of a whole, whole bunch of people, many of whom uh, we don't even know about. You know, this is happening all over the world, and we're catching a little bitty slice of it here as much as we can. Uh, at any rate, uh, you know, I told them I couldn't believe it, and it was really unfortunate that they were all excited about this dinosaur, as cruel as it might be, uh, yet nobody even knew his name. Nobody even in, in our hometown was aware of his work. So anyway, we sort of went, well, like, okay, whatever. What are we going to do about it? We just move along. So we con continued our conversation, and, and that was the end of it. Well, uh, that was last Wednesday. And that night, I, I got off the phone with Michael at about 8 o'clock that night, well, and anyway, my wife showed up at about 9 o'clock that night with the mail. And in the mail was a card from my mother. My mom and dad still live in Rockford, as I mentioned. And uh, it was a birthday card for me. Uh, today actually happens to be my birthday. So uh, anyway, my mom sent me a birthday card. And inside the birthday card is this article, a news article, from the Rockford Register Star. It's the newspaper there in Rockford. And the article says, Mom uses dolphins to help autistic son. And it's this long article about this woman in Rockford who uh, has an autistic son and who uh, decided that she would try uh, this alternative uh, therapy with dolphins in, uh, at some place in Florida, actually, if I remember correctly. But... At any rate, it was more of a personal interest piece, and it didn't have a whole lot of detail about uh, about what was going on uh, with the dolphin therapy, quote unquote, about you know the science behind it. But it was just a story about, uh, for the most part, about this woman and the success and the progress that her son is making with the help of uh, of the dolphins. So I couldn't believe it. I mean, I get this article from the Rockford newspaper right after I got off the phone with, with Michael Heisen. So I, I just sort of set it there on the counter, and I couldn't believe it, though. I really was sort of reeling from it and went to bed or whatever. And I got up in the morning, and it was Thursday morning, and I, couldn't for, I just couldn't get it off my mind. So as soon as I got to work, uh, I got on the web, and I, I found the contact information for Abby Reese, the woman who wrote this article from the Rockford Register Star. Her name is Abby Reese. And I found her email address and phone number on the website there. And I called, and I got a hold of her assistant. And uh, eventually, long story short, she called me back. And we had a long conversation. And I told her that I had read her article in a very interesting set of circumstances 
and I told her about Michael and the work that he's doing and uh, explained to her that the stuff that's going on at the, at the uh, Sirius Institute in Pune, Hawaii, is at the leading edge of all of the research that is driving what this woman's son was benefiting from at this clinic in Florida, that Paradise and Michael were the driving force behind this whole thing. And, uh, and not only that, I told her that Michael was there, that he was in Winnebago right now, there. He was there at this time visiting his parents. So anyway, uh, it turns out that we were able to work it out where uh, Abby Reese drove out to Winnebago and met with Michael Heisen on Thursday evening at about 5.30 or something. And they spent uh, a lot of time together, a long time together, and they're working on another story. And, and it's a, a really cool, synchronistic, uh, really actually uh, an amazing story if you think about the, the, the odds of uh, everything happening the way that they did. But at any rate, I'm, I, don't, I don't care why. Bottom line is it's an opportunity to, uh, to further the reach of, of that information, which is so important and is so cool and is a hopeful uh, one of the things that are uh, that are hopeful that's on the uh, on the horizon instead of uh, uh, you know instead of frightening the future is not all frightening there is plenty of hope out there it's just a matter of finding it because it doesn't get uh, it's not being flung at you like the uh, like the other stuff so anyway I wanted to share that with you because it was a really cool thing that I experienced and I was blown away in the midst of it as it was happening and I just sort of uh, was was hoping that it would work out exactly the way that it did and um, I'm really really pleased about it so that's the way the world works and sometimes it's real cool the way things come together so anyway this is Mike we'll come back in just a few minutes I'll play a little bit more music here and uh, I'll do space weather and then we'll do this wonderful piece from Dr. Ralph Abraham, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, and Terrence McKenna. And, you know, before I do that, let me give contact information and let me read this thing uh, for our uh, supporters over there at Mojo's. Uh, some of the operating funds for KOPN are provided by listener support and a donation from Mojo's. Information about Mojo's is available at www.mojoscolumbia.com or 573-875-1588. Lots of great music coming out of Mojo's and the Blue Note, as always, especially with the students now coming back to town real soon. Look for things to kick up uh, in the music scene around town, and lots of great stuff already and uh, recently over the last few weeks. So, Anyway, okay, this is Mike. We'll be back in just a few more minutes. Speaking of music, let's do some here. This is... This is a band called Idlewild, or Idlewild, I guess. I hope you like it. This is Mike. You're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit, 89.5 FM, Columbia. Your eyes 
That's uh, new music from Idlewild. That's called The Space Between All Things. And uh, speaking of space, 
We'll do a quick version of space weather tonight. Let you know what's going on. Not a whole lot, but uh, strange things. But as far as the orthodox stuff, not a whole lot going on. Uh, there is one thing that I'll mention. Sort of funny, actually. Uh, there is a story that's circulating on the web um, via email and other means, and it's talking about Mars, about this spectacular viewing of Mars that's going to be ongoing, in fact, right now. And it's actually sort of true. In other words, right now, uh, Mars is quite visible and bright and a pretty large object in the sky, very near the moon right now, actually, if uh, if, uh, if you can see it. Actually, I'm not out uh, outside right now, actually. But at any rate, there's this email going around that says that within the next two weeks that Mars is going to look as large as a full moon. And uh, this is something that's not... Uh, a valid statement. Let's just put it that way. The original story that it was pulled from said that uh, that at a modest 75 power magnification that Mars would look as big as the full moon. So that means uh, it's about 175th of the size of the full moon from the naked eye. But anyway, there's this email and stuff rolling around. There's a lot of people saying, oh yeah, Mars is going to be as big as the full moon. And uh, I just wanted to, if you'd heard that, don't uh, don't buy it. That's not gonna not gonna really happen. If it does, uh, let's put it this way: if if Mars does ever look the size of the full moon, mm, well then go do whatever it is that you love most. Right then. And hope you got enough time to finish. All right. <laughs> uh, the Perseid meteor shower was sort of uneventful, sort of unremarkable, underwhelming. Peaked on the 12th and 13th uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, and there were some sort of spectacular lone events during the Perseids, but uh, n- not uh, not what the some of the hopefuls were, were looking for. Anyway, that is a meteor shower that happens every year and it comes from the uh, from the direction of the constellation Perseus. That's why they call it the Perseids. You'll notice that with all of these uh, meteor showers. Uh, Aurora, if you're up in the upper latitude, sky watchers up there, up north, next couple days actually should be a lot of activity. Earth passing again through the effects of a coronal hole and a pretty high-speed solar wind blasting away over the next couple days should be affecting the magnetic fields and uh, making some nice light shows up there in the north. Uh, Other than that, uh, lots of strange things going on on the Soho cameras and on Mars. And uh, if you're if you're ever looking for this stuff, just go uh, go down to uh, either go to my website at, at, and this is a good chance to give out contact information. But uh, go to the website at www.radioorbit r a d i o r b i t dot com radioorbit dot com or cyberspaceorbit dot com, and 
at either one of those places, you'll be able to uh, see a lot of these stories that we're talking about. From my site, jump over to Kent's over there at cyberspaceorbit.com. He's always on top of this stuff more than uh, uh, more than anyone, at least anyone that I've ever found. And I'm always out there looking for new sources for information. And Kent, uh, when it comes to the space uh, phenomena, and in particular the sun uh, and uh, areas surrounding the sun, our solar system in particular, uh, Kent is one of the guys. He really is a great observer and uh, a great source of information on, on this sort of stuff. And, of course, he's a regular on the program here. If you're uh, listening for the first time, I'm referring to Kent Stedman, uh, the artist behind cyberspaceorbit.com. And lots of this information is there. So anyway, lots going on, as always, and uh, the universe strange, our world strange and wonderful, as always. And things roll along, you know? And where they roll... Nobody knows. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, Columbia, 89.5 FM. The phone number here in the studio is 573-874-5676. The email address is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com. And as I said before, the website address, www.radioorbit.com, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T. Dot com. This is new from the Foo Fighters. You're listening to Mike Hagan. This is Radio Orbit on KOP in Columbia. Should I? 
brand new from the Foo Fighters. That's called What If I Do. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. All right. Uh, well, you know, I was trying to get access to the computer, and we got a problem here in the studio tonight, so I don't really have access to the stuff that I wanted to read. So I'll talk about upcoming guests here for a few minutes, and then we'll put on our selected piece of entertainment for the evening. That'll give me a little while to get uh, some other stuff together, and I can talk about that at the end of the presentation if you guys aren't interested in calling and talking about it. If you are interested in calling and talking about it, do so. That number at the end uh, uh, of the piece that we're going to play, and that'll finish up probably right at about 1 o'clock. We're just closing in on midnight right now. Uh, I'll start this piece in about five minutes, maybe 10 at the most. It'll finish up at, at about 1. We'll have one more hour to close out the show. And I'll open the phone lines, and if anybody calls, we'll chat. And if nobody does, we'll play music and talk about some other s- 
stories and uh, things that are happening around planet Earth in the middle of the year 2005, according to the particular calendar that we choose to use in this country at this time. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, let's see. Next week, I said I'm going to be on vacation. So somebody else is going to be here doing the show. And I'm not sure what uh, we'll have for you, but try to make it something worthwhile. The following week, on the 29th of August, I'll have John DePew on the air, uh, live from Florida. And I mentioned John just last week. It's the first time I've actually talked about him. But he is an expert on the story uh, and the revelation uh, uncovered uh, in the story of Edward Leitzkalnen. And Ed Leitzkalnen is a name synonymous with mystery if you're into Fortianism and uh, the strange and unusual uh, because single-handedly this little Romanian immigrant who was about five feet tall and weighed about a hundred pounds he built an entire estate including a gigantic castle and all kinds of uh, different contraptions and monuments out of huge pieces of coral some weighing up to 30 tons and to this day, no one has known how Ed Leedskalman did what he did. Nobody ever witnessed it. He did it at night in secrecy. And it's a real strange story. And uh, I'm going to tell the story about Ed Leedskalman, and then we're going to have John DePew on the air, and he's going to tell us what he has uncovered uh, with regard to Ed Leedskalman's secrets and how he did what he did. So that's coming up in just a couple weeks. I'll be talking with John DePew on the Coral Castle Code, as he calls it. And apparently he has unraveled this code. And it has uh, greater implications, again, if it's legitimate, if it's uh, the real deal. It has greater implications. Uh, so that's coming up in just a couple weeks. The following week after that, that'll be the 5th of September. Man, we're already almost in September, but that's going to be a great evening that I'm really looking forward to. Alex and Allison Gray, two of the most influential and transformative artists alive today, uh, will be here on Radio Orbit live from their studios in New York City. Allison and Alex Gray, looking really forward to that. That's coming up in just three weeks. Then uh, after that, sort of up in the air, but Vincent Bridges uh, will be on the air soon. Lucy Pringle will be talking about crop formations. Again, an amazing and remarkable season on the, on the, uh, the English countryside. Unbelievable things showing up again this year in the fields of wheat and barley and rapeseed and all these different uh, crops 
but beautiful and astonishing works of art showing up overnight in these fields. And it, to me, you know, just from an aesthetic point of view, I mean, I'm not... It's very interesting how it gets done. And, and certainly there are hoaxes, and I understand that there are human beings that are doing this. Uh, it does not mean that they are doing all of them. And there are some uh, that defy investigators' attempt to uh, understand it through, through typical human uh, means. In other words, they weren't a two-by-four and a couple of pieces of rope and this sort of thing because the weave and the way that the crops are twisted down on top of one another in certain in certain patterns, geometrical patterns, is just something that cannot be accomplished like that. And there are also physiological effects to the nodes of the plants that uh, are being recorded now. And there's 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 quite a bit of science that's being applied to this particular phenomenon. But we'll talk uh, at at great length with Lucy Pringle about that in uh, just a few weeks. Of course, Lucy's an aerial photographer and a private pilot and an investigator of uh, these crop circles and crop formations for some 25, 26 years now. So, and then very soon I'll I'll air that uh, interview with Ralph Abraham that I did this afternoon. I I, I spoke with Ralph, uh, Dr. Ralph Abraham this afternoon, and had a wonderful conversation. And it was a great thrill for me, and I hope it's something that you guys will appreciate when when you hear it. Lots of other things coming up, but get to those uh, as we get to those. Play a little bit of a uh, little bit more music here, and then we'll come back with uh, trilogues at the edge of the millennium. Dr. Ralph Abraham, Terence McKenna, Dr. Rupert, uh, Rupert Sheldrake. That's all coming up in just a few minutes on Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia, 89.5 FM.
Robin Wainwright. That's a new song by a band called Shelby. And this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. Columbia, 89.5 FM. And we're going to get right down to business here and uh, play the piece I promised you. And it is called Trilogues at the Edge of the Millennium. And it's a conversation uh, between Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, Dr. Dr. Ralph Abraham, and Terrence McKenna. And it took place in 1998 at a place called Esalen on the cliffs of Big Sur in Northern California. And I thought it was appropriate because I actually talked to Dr. Abraham today and interviewed him for a, uh, uh, a show that I'll air sometime in the next few weeks, but sort of synchronistic, so I thought I'd play this for you guys all tonight. So I hope you enjoy it. I'll be back in just a little while. We'll play one piece of music in uh, about a half an hour, take a little bit of a break, but uh, otherwise we'll listen to this straight through. Come back uh, about an hour from now and take your calls and discuss any of this if you'd like to, or play some more music and talk about some of the news and things that are happening about planet Earth. All right, uh, thanks for listening. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. One more time, this is Trialogues at the Edge of the Millennium with Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, Dr. Ralph Abraham, and Terrence McKenna. gathering the um, announcement part of the con which brought you here mentioned the edge of the millennium at the edge of the millennium and uh, so far the millennium has been present by subtle implication alone so I think to honor our commitment we'll now trilogue on the edge of the millennium is okay it's okay now, in our just-appeared new book, The Evolutionary Mind, there is a chapter near the end called, I forget what it's called, it's about utopianism and millenarianism, two pretty long isms which altogether add up to an overdose of different approaches to the future which are more or less classical, and there we spoke extensively of the extant literature and literary tradition and industry of a utopian and millenarian genre. So that kind of utopian and millenarian stuff is not what we're going to talk about in this trilogue. I want to introduce a completely different notion of the millennium and I'm interested more particularly in the edge of the millennium. And uh, here's how it goes. This is partly, uh, according to me, a mathematical view of history that brings up this particular version of the idea of the millennium. And uh, nevertheless, other people have written a similar view 
of history without any explicit recourse to mathematics. So I think it's pretty general. It has to do, this view of history, with the approach we've taken toward biological evolution that it goes forward in uh, catastrophes and critical leaps and, and so on, sudden jumps. The punctuated equilibrium approach to history says that history goes along in a kind of a level a plateau, developmentally speaking, although there may be a gradual development up or down overall. And then every once in a while there is a big leap. The first uh, such view of history I think that we know about was presented by the ancient Egyptians. So this is uh, nothing new. Now in my own work I have classified uh, some major plateaus including uh, the last one, the one that we're at the end of now according to my system of history began 6,000 years ago or 5,500 years ago with the invention of the wheel and the first city-states and stuff like that. Talking Schumer, talking Babylonia, talking ancient Egypt here. And uh, so that's a 6,000 year plateau. Now other people, for example, uh, Bill Thompson, somebody we know and talk to about world cultural history, he has a similar scheme in which the plateau now ending is only uh, three or four hundred years old. See, there were the people who, went, who really wrote about this uh, explosion idea in world cultural history was Jakob Furkhardt. Burkhardt said the Renaissance was a quantum leap in world cultural history, and then other people said, well, what about Giotto? You know, what about Patatria? What about Boccaccio? And um, the truth is that whenever you look at two major milestones in history and consider that between the milestones to be a sort of a level road, then somebody will come along and find a smaller milestone in there. Nowadays we have fractal geometry, so we think that this is na natural. Between any two big catastrophes, there'll be ten smaller ones. Between any two of the smaller ones, there'll be 40 or 50 little or teenier ones, and so on. The first person I know who put forward such a fractal idea of history that it's not continuous, it's discontinuous, but the discontinuities are more or less dense, as in a fractal, the first such person is you, Terence. I give you credit in writing in my entry in the Encyclopedia of Time. You maybe have never read that book. Never read it. Well, there you'll find your name mentioned in a flattering way by me of all people. Immortality at last. At last. <laughs> <laughs> well, to make a long story short, it's these uh, controversial plateaus of history that I'm going to call millennia. And then if you want to go back to chapter 10 of the evolutionary mind and read there about the history of the millenarial concept, then you'll see that the first one, wherein the number 1,000 was actually mentioned for the length of one of these plateaus, gave his name to the thing. It was a special case of my more abstract idea of millennium. It's the plateau of history. And what I mean by the edge of 
millennium is those times when there's the snap-out from one equilibrium to another. Cro-Magnon comes out of Neanderthalus or whatever it is. And uh, oxygen comes out of the archaeobiological background and whatever. And the interest of this, according to me, is why, why are we here? Who would talk about the evolutionary mind? Who cares about the uh, good and evil and the evolution of species and so on? This must be interesting only to the degree to which it informs us in this very present moment regarding our choices that we will make in the creation of the future. So according to chaos theory and its uh, partner theory of bifurcations, this is one of the main things that teaches something like the butterfly effect that you've heard about. In a dynamical system, or a massively complex dynamical system such as we live in, when there is a moment of bifurcation, which is the technical math jargon for these snaps, that is the only time you get to do anything about the evolution of the system. So according to this self-inflating view, we live at a specially important special moment in history where when we think something or do something, it has actually an enormous effect on the future. Maybe not a direct, determinative effect, but we can't really say what the outcome will be. But what we do has some influence on the creation of the future more than other times in history. And the bigger the jump, the bigger the leverage, where Archimedes said, give me a lever and I'll move the world, we have a lever now. And we care about what's coming next. So that's why the edge of the millennium, any edge of any of the millennia, is particularly important to those revolutionary souls who want to make a change in things. It's a special time. A century or two centuries ago, you could struggle for the creation of a chaos revolution, and it would be impossible because there were no computers around, or there were no um, movie makers in Hollywood or something. I don't know. It takes more than we know about to create these special opportunities. And anyway, that's what I mean by millennium, and that's what I mean by at the edge of the millennium. And now this is only a hypothesis for the sake of discussion, but I kind of think that this uh, is very credible that we are now at the edge of a millennium. Therefore, we, we have to discuss this. And the question that I'm going to uh, pose to you, Rupin Tear, if this isn't uh, too radical, is <clears throat> to what degree do you think actually that what we are doing now matters in the creation of the future? And if there is any possibility that what we do matters in the creation of the future, what kind of future or what kind of change are we trying to create? And to what degree what we are actually doing, for example, what we are talking about today, what we are doing today, to what degree could that possibly be a real effect, a real benefit in um, creating the future that we want to create in contrast to other things that we might do, like go to the beach and pray or whatever. <laughs> And 
particularly. <laughs> Should I stop here? Well, that's well, one well, I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, well, I'm trying to make this easier for you because I think this might be too difficult. As we. Well, I mean, I think I said this morning, or maybe I didn't, but I believe it and have said it many times. Salvation is an act of cognitive apprehension. So we do matter. Because to the degree that we are ignorant of vidya in the, in the Buddhist lexicon, we retard universal progress towards some kind of enlightenment. But the doctrine of avidya, this is standing for all time since 1800 BC. Do you agree that this is a special moment? Yes, I think so. Not only a special moment, but the other thing I would call people's attention to is the fact that no matter whether you scanned your way in here today and no matter whether you're going to go back to a appliance box that you live in under a bridge, the odds are that you, you are very close to the top of the pyramid of global empowerment. You are mostly white, mostly well-educated, mostly have enough disposable income to come to an event like this. It's worth pointing out that all that rides on the backs of those who do not have such privilege. And so, yeah, this is a moment of enormous opportunity and those who find themselves in this moment with power, defined however you care to define it, have a moral obligation uh, to act. And I don't advocate a certain political agenda, not that we must become Marxists or that we must become anything. What we must become is clear. Uh, we have the technologies and the informational structures and all the necessary abilities to create paradise on earth, to lift up the least among us to at least an acceptable uh, level of comfort and freedom. Why do we not do that? Because what stands in our way is our own minds, our own habits. We must change our minds. That's the most powerful political work people in this room could do. And there is nobody who is so enlightened that they don't need to work on themselves and do this. To the degree that we can change our minds, we will escape extinction, marginality, and so forth and so on. And to the degree that we cannot change our minds, we will prolong the agony, perhaps unto death and extinction, perhaps only making the struggle more difficult. But yes, this is a moment of enormous a opportunity. Yes. We have a yes. A yes. <laughs> so we, uh, you, you agree that it's a moment of special opportunity over the long and short scales of time, according to um, either mathematics or novelty theory. Yes. And do you agree that we have a responsibility to do our best? Yes. And what you have to tell us is that if the 200 of us here change our minds, that that would somehow have an ameliorative effect on the rest of the world and our creation of the future. Yes. How? 
<laughs> How would it have this effect? Yes, by telepathic means, by the romance of photons. No, I think by the spread of clarity. The spread of clarity, the elimination of redundancy in the system, and uh, uh, the spreading of a sense of shared purpose and the possibility of achieving that purpose. It doesn't matter what you do beyond changing your mind for a better clarity? Well, I don't want to say absolutely it doesn't matter, but I think that's the first obligation. If you charge off with some political agenda that is not informed by clarity, you're going to end up with business as usual. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, but it is not paved with clarity. <laughs> So you're, uh, for example, what you do in my, if you barnstorm giving lectures, you write books and you create a website. And the effect of this, hopefully, will be to promote clarity. Correct. <laughs> well, first of all, I certainly agree that for me personally, psychedelic experience has enhanced clarity, whereas some people think the opposite. Well, let us have vigorous debate by informed parties <laughs> on the subject. <laughs> Don't forget, I've given over 300 calculus lectures in this room. <laughs> it boggles my mind to look out and think, well, yeah, this is Santa Cruz. This must be Santa Cruz. No, this is the real Santa Cruz. What do you think, Rupe? Well, I, the question really is, I mean, changing minds, we're talking, you were talking about the butterfly wing effect. The question is, if we change our minds, can it have a larger effect on other people's minds? Yes. Because if we decide to recycle yet more newspaper and so on, it's not going to have that much effect. The, the changing mind thing, the butterfly wing analogy, suggests some major change of mind spreading through our culture. Now, I suspect that you think the medium for this transformation is the World Wide Web. I suspect that Terence thinks the medium... Well, I think telepathy is equally powerful. Yes, but... Um, Wait, I want to hear his suspicion, I think. <laughs> World well, Wide Web? Yes. I no, think. no. Psychedelic drugs. World Wide Web. Psychedelic drugs. <laughs> I don't... I still haven't understood the psychedelic drug agenda. We, Britain has the highest percentage of psychedelic drug consumption in the Western world at the moment. And it's not entirely clear that this has resulted in clarity spreading through... <laughs> Britain is the source of, and the fountainhead of the worldwide youth culture that is creating the new music, the new dance, the new forms of uh, community, and the new resistance to consumerist values. So don't sell the old UK. Come store. to the rave tonight yes. and see clarity created. <laughs> yes.
Yes, the, a crucible of clarity as home at last goes. <laughs> and Terence takes the microphone. And... <laughs> well, it's not always perfectly clear what's going on when you have your nose in it, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, my own agenda relies partly on the World Wide Web, not as strongly as yours. And I, here in this room is Matthew Clapp, who kindly runs my World Wide website. Um, Jailbreak.org. Yes. <laughs> so, but my own view is that this clarity involves breaking the spell of rationalism, Cartesianism, a spell woven more powerfully than ever before this morning by Terence. Um, I mean, it took on a new level of spellbinding um, in the way you described it. It's to recognize that we're far more interconnected, uh, we're far more participatory in our relation with the world than this cognitive um, kind of science and cognitive model of the mind would tell us. And so I think the secret to waking us up one of the secrets is psychic pets. As you know, this is one of my particular themes. Um, and the purpose of... I wrote a book which some of you may have seen called Seven Experiments That Could Change the World. The purpose of this was to find simple experiments that could give us clarity on issues uh, that we know about already, which could actually have a transformative effect on our view of the world. They're to do with changing our scientific view of the world. And the scientific view of the world is a particularly important part of the spell that binds us all and that affects our whole um, civilization, our whole industrial culture. And it's an exceptionally narrow and dissociated view of the world at the moment. The reason I think psychic pets could play this part is, first of all, there's more of them than psychedelics. I mean, they're everywhere. Um, there are lots and lots of dogs and cats that have telepathic bonds with their owners. About 50% of Americans feel that they've had a telepathic bond with an animal. Now, to recognize what so many people already know, through experiments to test these to see if they're real, and so far the experiments suggest they are real, um, this can give permission for people to recognize what they already know. Then all these closet holists, uh, or most of us are closet holists, can come out and um, recognize that there's this kind of interconnection with other species and with each other uh, that's been going on all the time, but which has been suppressed from the level of supposedly rational discourse by the idea that this is all superstition, it's not scientific, it's irrational, and so forth. I think that the, one of the big difficulties in our culture is the split between the rational educated part of our minds which we put on in public and the participatory sense of connection which we have at home with gardens, plants, children, animals, lovers and our nearest and dearest and these are so dissociated that it's very hard for people to recognize that they're related in any way. Lots of dogs know when their owners are coming home in a kind of telepathic manner and wait at the door for them uh, while they're on the way home. I calculate that tens of thousands of American scientists have dogs waiting at the door for them when they get home from the laboratory, even if they come at unusual times and in an unusual way. Yet, 
this phenomenon has been so subject to taboo that it's never been investigated scientifically at all. It could have been investigated at any time in the last 500 or 5,000 years. But the fact is the first investigations are happening um, at present. Here in the room is David Brown who works with me, is based in Santa Cruz and is doing experiments with psychic dogs, cats and cockatiels in Santa Cruz County. And if any of you have such animals, please let him or me know at the end because we'd love to investigate your animals. Um, and to, to you can take part in this research. So I think that grassroots research based on phenomena that are actually common sense that are part of everyday life for many people could help to wake us up to give a greater clarity about what's really going on and make us recognize that there's far more interconnection between us and other species and us and other people uh, than is admitted in the scientific view of things which is the world view which most people feel they have permission to talk about in public. So I think that this transition, a butterfly wing effect, um, would be a few dogs and cats that do this being proved scientifically to be able to do it, shown on TV, um, would probably overnight give millions of people permission to recognize and talk about these events in their own lives and never again would this subject be able to be stuffed back into the closet. Um, I think these could lead to a great change in the way we think about the world. Now it's not, of course it's several steps from that to solving the eco ecological problems of the world to dealing with the problem of multinational corporations and so on. But it's a step towards clarity and it's one that could spread very quickly. Well, it seems to me the overarching theme here that unites all three of our positions is boundary dissolution. Psychedelic drugs dissolve boundaries, the World Wide Web dissolves boundaries, and certainly the discovery that our pets are communicating, anticipating, and understanding us is a boundary dissolving perception. Uh, so really what we're saying is we must dissolve the artificial boundaries that confine our perceptions. Someone once said, if we could feel what we are doing to the earth, we would stop immediately. Because a man hitting himself on the head with a ball-peen hammer stops immediately. The feedback <laughs> loop is very short. So we have compartmentalized our lives, and this allows us to do the faithful and lethal work that is destroying the planet, destroying community, so forth and so on. Uh, so maybe three answers as diverse as you've just heard here, you might search your own soul and ask uh, what obsession or interest of mine would contribute to the grand project of boundary dissolution. Uh, all right, this is Mike. You're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit, 89.5 FM. And uh, we're right in the middle of this piece, Trilogues at the End of the Millennium, or at the Edge of the Millennium, I should say, with uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, Ralph Abraham, and Terrence McKenna. This is Mike Hagan, and we'll be back in just a few minutes with the conclusion, another half hour or so of uh, the talk between these three gentlemen. And take a break, and we'll be back in, what do we got here? About four minutes or so, all right? All right, in the meantime, this is more new music. This is a band called Clinic. 
from the CD Walking With Thee, and this is called Harmony. And this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia.
right, yeah, that's uh, Clinic from Walking With Thee. That song is called Harmony. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit. And let's get right back to it. We're right in the middle of a selection from a number of conversations that were had about seven years ago between Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, Ralph Abraham, and Terrence McKenna. This one in particular is called Trialogues at the Edge of the Millennium. And we'll be back in just about uh, 30 minutes to either discuss it or talk about other stuff. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, and we'll talk to you in a little while. Not the affirmation of cultural values. Culture is a scheme for maintaining and creating boundaries. It replaces reality with a, a linguistically supported delusion, and behind that delusion then pogroms, programs of genocide, arms races, sexism, racism, all can operate very, very comfortably. Uh, Ralph earlier mentioned love. Uh, generally speaking, love is a boundary-dissolving enterprise. So I think each of us, the three of us, all of you, in our way, should find ways to express love and it's not it's not treacly it's not woo-woo it's a very practical matter that has thousands of expressions as long as we believe in mind and matter rich and poor living and dead aboriginal and advanced black and white man and woman then we're inevitably going to carry on a dualistic analysis of our dilemma and we're going to produce incomplete agendas and answers well this is uh, this is good I agree with everything I admire you both for your revolutionary efforts I nevertheless I can't help having a sinking feeling here we are in the University of California naturally my thoughts turn to the educational system now we have here a group, uh, I know there are actually a few undergraduates of the University of California at Santa Cruz are here by accident as it were, and that's cool, but we have not yet taken over one uh, regularly offered course of the university uh, to enable students to learn science by doing research projects with psychic pets. Um, well, Ralph, we, the university is the last place where you would look for this. The well, university is the manufacturer of these cultural values that intrude. Well, that's why I'm bringing up this subject of education at this time. I think we've discussed the problem of education before, but my experience is that no amount of clarity in this group of 200 and other like groups is going to matter one whit when we are all adults. You see, the, um, the next generation will have to face the same butterfly problem with the same lever because the majority of people will have their uh, paradigm set in K through 12 in some archaic school system that sees its primary business to work against a worldwide cultural revolution. So the inertia 
But we have to overcome inertia. And we can talk about religion and the psychedelics and getting clarity and, and so on. We know that the scientific establishment is a big obstacle as far as environmental problems are concerned. And so Rupert's work, the ultimate effect will be to deconstruct or revolutionize science, is very important in making a transformation among adult scientists worldwide. How can this matter at all? if there's no change in the educational system K through 12, pre-K, pre-pre-K, and back to the womb, the parents, and, and so on, that this chicken and egg loop has got to be <coughs> somewhere in a more sensitive spot than the adult community. And, and what do you propose? Well, you work with youth, I guess. You're interested in talking with younger people. And um, Rupert, I know that you're particularly active in education through the existence of your children who are now subject to the educational system that, that does this uh, criminal brainwashing that I'm talking about. Mm. So um, I'm, I'm just posing this now. Do you have any idea as to the transformation of our school system by a change of curriculum or, uh, or the entrance of any uh, weird idea into the actual program which trains most children worldwide. Well, I ought to have. Um, there's a story that perhaps not everyone here is familiar with, which is when I was in New York um, a couple of years ago, I was asked to visit a school in Long Island. Um, I was particularly urged to go there. Uh, a private helicopter was sent to take me and I was asked to address the board and the uh, teachers of the school and when I asked them what they'd like me to speak about they said they wanted to, me to speak about the rectified Sheldrake principle on which their entire curriculum was based so when I said what is the rectified Sheldrake principle <laughs> they said that that was the very question they were asking and they said, that I would explain. I then asked who had invented the rectified Sheldrake principle on which the curriculum was based and they soon revealed that the author of this principle, or at least the author of the documents on which their entire curriculum were based, was Ralph Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> By careful questioning, I was able to find out that the rectified Sheldrake principle meant that because of morphic resonance and habits of learning, uh, the sequence of events in which people should learn things in school should follow the historical process. So in history, you learn first about the Sumerians, Egyptians, etc. Then you move on to the ancient Greeks, the Romans, the Dark Ages, etc. That it follows the principle. Uh, and they start in grade one with ancient Egypt. I calculated on this basis that the uh, invention of the domestication of fire, which occurred between 400 to 700,000 years ago, should mean that in the toddler play groups they should be <laughs> playing with fire. Um, I pointed this out, but it didn't, that wasn't part of the curriculum I was suggesting. I discovered that there was, in fact, an entire process of educational reform afoot in this country, behind which is the guiding genius of Ralph Abraham. <laughs> so, I think we should ask you this question, Ralph, since you've more experience than most of us. Uh, well, I'd rather that people with less experience speak about it. 
Because <laughs> uh, my experience has been very disappointing. Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> The, the problem as I perceive it, and maybe you can help me get through this one. The, um, the children are innocent and trusting and will try any curricular reform experiment. They'll try anything, which they have done in different schools around the world with, with great effect. It was only a couple of days ago I was at the, uh, the Intel farm, they call it, in Oregon, where 10,000 people work on realizing Terence's dream. And <laughs> Making psychedelic drugs available to <laughs> Oh, a different dream. <laughs> they know what I mean. Chips, not hits. <laughs> Uh, casually over lunch, I revealed my um, revolutionary program for the schools to a software engineer who was sitting there, and he said, oh, well, this his historical curriculum, he said, I'm an Armenian, and Armenia went, not uh, Algeria, he said, I'm from Algeria, and my school was exactly what you, it was wonderful. And so he, th there are places in the world where even my experiment has been tried. The problem is this, the, the children, okay, the owners of the school, the people, everything is fine. The problem is with the teachers and parents. The teachers have been trained. That's one problem. <laughs> and, and the parents have been frightened, I guess. So the parents absolutely refuse any experiments that would affect their children because the danger of a failure, you see that they, they consider the current system which is guaranteed to fail is somehow safer than an experimental system that might fail. The insecurity itself is a source of anxiety. Well, I'm just analyzing. I don't really know what goes through their mind, but what I have discovered is that groups of parents come in and physically attack the, the teachers, the administrators, and so on to guarantee that the time-worn um, failure proved system as is is performed as it always has been you see the problem older people seem that's to be why Terence has recommended mushrooms that's why <laughs> Rupert has suggested psychic pets you see how revolutionary is psychic pets we're talking about the parents here after they is proof to them that what they already know is true by somebody in the authority of the scientific establishment, then their truth will become true for them for the first time due to the fact that they trust authority more than they trust their own experience. Hmm. So I, I haven't given up yet. Hmm. with the educational system, but I'm, I'm still seeking some little way around this uh, very deeply ingrained habit. And, and well, part of the problem is, as the stakes rise, the clenching on the part of the geriatric establishment becomes even more intensified. So, for example, right now, uh, the worldwide epidemic of youth bashing 
is the most counterproductive thing we could possibly generate. I mean, we're leaning on the very people who are going to have to save the situation. Why not admit the obsolescence and bankruptcy of the old models and take our foot off the neck of youth and honor uh, an interest in psychedelic experimentalism, sexual redefining of roles, a new look at how we relate to work, a new look at how we relate to community. Instead of marginalizing youth culture and defining it as a phase, misguided, naive, foolish, we should say these are the uncorrupted people in society who have not yet felt the hammer of the programming and the guilt and the creodes of economic necessity and try to build upward and outward from youth culture rather than uh, suppressing it. For this reason, I will be appearing at a rave tonight that starts after my bedtime. <laughs> I wish I could um, be persuaded by your persuasive rhetoric. Um, my experience of youth culture is here are people who from the age of two have been watching hours a day of television um, shaped by commercials cunningly designed to introduce toddlers to the consumer society whose music is dominated by a music industry run by cynical interests, manipulative people, public relations operations and large corporations. So to see this as uncontaminated, pure, the spirit of tomorrow, untarnished by the vices of today, seems to me to beg a number of questions. However, well, let me answer. I'll be your... there at the rave tonight too, Terence, and there I'll be able to see this paradise that's unfolding before us. Your point about television is well taken. I totally agree. I think this is the most pernicious programming and propaganda device around. It's about to be strangled by the World Wide Web. Well, and you know, you can just turn off your TV. And I don't, I say that as someone who did. I raised my children without television because rather than just giving lip service to the idea that it's stupid, we actually acted on the perception. Yes, and we do too. But your other point about the youth culture's music being ha in the hands of capitalists and record companies is slightly out of touch with what's actually happening. For $500 you can buy a CDR burner. Bands do this and most youth culture music is now put out in editions of under a thousand pressings and really the corporate middlemen have all been gone around and the big record corporations are not at all in touch with real tastes and real creativity in the music business. They recycle garbage that they support with massive public relations programs at the same time that real creativity is alive and well and thriving on a <laughs> fractalized micro scale that goes right around the desires of mass consumerism. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> I don't, I just, uh, it would be good if there could be an experiment carried out, perhaps with you as the cheerleader, for this. Uh, youth culture of tomorrow actually to be able to be 
permitted rather than suppressed and so on to see what happens. In my, I mean there are quite a number of experiments in this I would have thought going on spontaneously. It's not as if all these people involved in this culture are totally controlled by parents, teachers, etc. Many of them are not under direct control in this way at all. Um, so, but you're still going to have to have educational systems, school systems of one kind or another. And it's not clear to me that uh, you know, more raves and psychedelics are going to automatically to generate that. Well, I would offer as an example, I think the place on the planet where youth culture is most in control of the social agenda, uh, in other words, where youth's preference for psychedelic drugs is honored, where youth's music is honored, where microeconomic systems built by youth are honored, is uh, <clears throat> the Netherlands. Holland, lowest AIDS infection rate in Europe, lowest heroin addiction rate in Europe. Heroin is legal, prostitution is legal. There are actually very large-scale social experiments going on that embody the values of youth culture and they're producing saner, less stressful, more life-affirming in human societies than anything going on inside the high-tech industrial democracies that are the that set the global agenda. I think. Well, I often visit Holland, and I must say I haven't quite noticed such a striking distant difference between them and the rest of Western Europe. Well, but that's really because you come from London, where also these yes. things are happening. But if you lived in Berlin or Rio de Janeiro or Houston, I think the contrast with the Netherlands is quite astonishing. Mm. Didn't mean to stop the show. <laughs> Ralph, you're not saying enough. Oh, am I guilty then of too much self-indulgence? No, you've posed important problems. Yes. You've shown how on the edge of the millennium great steps or small steps are needed that magnify through butterfly effects. Yes. You've asked me and Terence what you think they should be. Yes. You've told us you're disappointed by your own experiments with the reform of the educational system. Yes. So, what next? Well... <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as I say, I, I think that we're at uh, the edge of a millennium. We're at a uh, turning point, what may be coming down the pike uh, could be two or three miracles that will decidedly change the definition of the problem. And in the meanwhile, I think that we're more or less stuck in the situation where we keep trying what we're doing and uh, believing that it has at least some chance of having, having an effect. I think that <coughs> the uh, the educational system might change itself by a miracle, for example. And it could do that in a way that had nothing whatsoever to do with any of our efforts, or in fact it may be that some little thing that we did mattered. I, I think that your work in the revolution of science is uh, very important and, and very promising, and it's uh, proceeded with essentially without funding because the the genius of the program that you've evolved is that it has uh, this enormous leverage and at every uh, crossing of the road you've take, made the right choice to get more leverage. 
and uh, uh, Terence, I think that your your program also is is a good one in that it's over the years changed in the direction of younger people, and that you've been um, you know changed your approach to maximize and. I don't uh, see in either case that there's an enormous backlash working against you, that um, other revolutionary movements have been stopped by a backlash, and although you don't have funding, you don't have uh, groups uh, calling you up and threatening your life and, and so on. In my own case, I have felt, uh, I've, I've written about this endlessly, besides writing mathematics, I write that mathematics is important. And through the microscopic analysis of the hinges of history, the edges of millennia past, I have uh, pointed out exactly where in each case mathematics had a key role in the miracle and the bifurcation that happened. I think that uh, society that rejects mathematics cannot actually successfully deal with these problems. And therefore, I have activated myself uh, against the problem, especially prevalent in the United States, and concomitant with other problems that are especially prevalent in the United States, the problem of math, anxiety, avoidance, and uh, misunderstanding. Mm. And uh, here, KOPN Columbia, that there is a huge uh, institution, more or less equivalent to the scientific community, this is arrayed against this information. That somehow the uh, educational system has been particularly persistent in the destruction of mathematics, in the destruction of mathematical capability of youth, and therefore in disempowerment of the society with its critical faculty to change. I do not believe you can have any clarity of view in the progress of history with no mathematical training on the part of any of the participants. I have seen in this society that even Nobel Prize winners in physics have math anxiety to a very severe degree. I'm able to detect this because it's something that uh, is uh, amplified. It's behavior that emerges as soon as I walk into a room. <laughs> so <clears throat> uh, I, I, I guess I feel in some that my, my own uh, efforts have been rather less successful, or maybe I haven't been as uh, clever in turning to the left or right at the, at the crossings of the road. The problem is already much less severe in other countries, so it seems like we need to worry too much. In, in Europe, throughout Europe, for example, the uh, problem of the destruction of mathematical capability is far less severe. The only thing really disturbing there is that it's growing at an alarming rate, that it's becoming, they're inheriting the disease from the United States, a spreading disease based on standardized examinations like the SAT and equivalent movements. So uh, there you have it, a problem that's so bad that the very mention of the word mathematics produces an um, aversion reaction that is paralyzing so that much as I hate to, and you've seen this uh, today, that I can go through an entire day without mentioning mathematics, with mentioning mathematics but not the word mathematics, in the hopes of tricking people into recognizing that some ideas like this that have to do with uh, 
perception of space-time patterns in the abstract, that these, uh, these skills are, are useful. Can I add to that? I mean, I don't think what Ralph means is that it's a tragedy that most people can't factor a quadratic equation. I think he speaks as he does because he is so professionally immersed in these issues. As someone somewhat more distant from all of this, but in agreement from Ralph, the failure to teach mathematics in practical social and political terms boils down to a failure to teach uh, logic and discriminating understanding. The great evil, in my humble opinion, which haunts our enterprise, and I say this realizing I'm setting the fox among the chickens, the great evil that has been allowed to flourish in the absence of mathematical understanding is relativism. And what is relativism? It's the idea that there is no distinction between shit and shinola. <laughs> that all ideas are somehow operating on equal footing. So one person is a chaos theorist, Another is uh, a follower of the revelations of this or that New Age guru. Someone else is channeling information from the Pleiades. And we have been taught that political correctness demands that we treat all these things with equal weight. Because we have no mathematical ability, no logical ability, we don't know how to ask the questions that expose some positions as preposterous, trivial, insulting to the intelligence, and unworthy of repetition. So uh, we all are very comfortable bashing science and flailing away at that, but that isn't our enemy. Science is capable of undertaking its own reformation and critique and has been engaged in that fairly vigorously for some time. Uh, the enemy that will really subvert the enterprise of building a world based on clarity is the belief that we cannot point out the pernicious forms of idiocy that flourish in our own community. And this problem is going, growing worse all the time. I mean, just pick up a copy of Magical Blend or Shaman's Drum and you will discover an appeal to the level of intellect that makes what's going on with television advertising look like a meeting of the Princeton Institute of Advanced Study. Uh, we have tolerated too many loose heads in our uh, community. We are not willing to take on the karma involved in argument and discourse that actually gores somebody's ox. So that at the end of the day, iridology or Mormonism or some other form of institutionally supported foolishness lies in shreds on the floor. We consider this politically incorrect. I can feel the tension in this room because people sense I might gore their particular thoughts. Uh, if we had learned mathematical logic, or reason or rules of evidence 
when someone approaches us uh, excited to inform us that uh, the ruins of Lemuria have been spotted in the deep sea off Big Sur or something like that, uh, we would be able to respond to that with the contempt it deserves. Uh, I, I had a conversation about this recently with someone who if I had to describe their job category, I would describe them as uh, mafiosa. And I said, uh, what do you think of uh, the abduction phenomenon? And without hesitation, this person said, there are just so many foolish people in the world. And uh, to me, all of these things are intelligence <coughs> tests. And the people who pass the intelligence test are not worrying about pro bono proctologists from other star systems. <laughs> <laughs> in their bedroom. So, uh, you know, we, we have perfected politeness. We have perfected the ability to listen to damn foolishness without betraying by so much as the flick of an eyebrow that we realize what we're in the presence of. Now, I think, it's time to refine our mathematical skills, learn to think straight, and not be afraid to uh, denounce the pernicious forms of foolishness which are vitiating the energies of our community and making us appear uh, marginal and absurd in the discourse about truly transforming society. <laughs> Well, I can't wait to see this laboratory of clarity unfold before me tonight. As well as all nonsense is dispelled, the scalpel of reason is brought out by Terence. Yes, well, it is an ambiguous enterprise and fraught with contradiction, but forward, ever forward. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there you have it. Uh, that's the finish of Trilogues at the Edge of the Millennium. Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, Dr. Ralph Abraham, and Terence McKenna from 1998 the Esalen Institute in Northern California. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. All right, uh, it's about 10 after 1. Got 50 minutes left of the program tonight. We'll play a little music here. I'll open the phone lines up if anybody's interested in calling and chatting about uh, the stuff that we just heard or anything else. You're more than welcome to do that. Uh, the number to call if you'd like to get on the air is area code 573-443-8255, 573-443-8255, or uh, if you just want to talk to me off the air uh, in the studio here at a break, the number is 573-874-5676. And as always, if you have uh, something that you'd like to share with me uh, after the show, you can always email me. 
with questions or comments, concerns, anything like that, uh, email at orbitradio at AOL.com. All right, hope you enjoyed that piece with Rupert and Terrence. And Ralph, as I mentioned earlier, I talked to Ralph this afternoon and did a nice interview with him, and I'll be sharing that with you guys as soon as I get it cleaned up and uh, ready to play in the next few weeks. And I look forward to it. It was real good stuff. So, all right, what do we have here for you? This is this is three uh, three girls, uh, and they call themselves Rasputina. I'm not sure what the name of this track is, but it's from a CD called Lost and Found. Hope you enjoy it. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM.
right, that's Rasputina. And again, uh, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. All right, it's 1.15 a.m. on Tuesday morning now, the 16th of August. And if you're interested in calling and uh, talking about the entertainment that was just on the air just a little while ago, you can give me a call at area code 573-443-8255. That's 573-443-8255. If not, we'll just talk a little bit with you here and uh, play a little bit more music as we finish up the show. I uh, The computers are down here for some reason. I'm not sure what's going on. I don't have access to the Internet uh, in the studio here like we normally do. So some of the stories that I sort of had lined up to talk about tonight, I don't have access to. And, of course, the way things work, uh, I usually do like a a written, or not written, but a typed Microsoft Word document of sort of the general outline for the show every week. And today I didn't do that because I didn't work today, and it was my birthday, and I was screwing around all day with my family, and uh, then I came in here to the studio, or to the station really early, and did an interview with Ralph Abraham at 5 o'clock, and never went home and never really uh, prepared that uh, that paper version of the outline for my show. I just sort of wrote an outline, hand handwritten, and then decided that I would just use the web to uh, to go over the stories that I wanted to talk about. Um, and I don't have the web, but I could do it by memory here, and certainly some of them were technologically related. There's some some amazing uh, developments in the fields of nanotechnology, in particular in the medical application of nanotechnology. And this is something that we talked about at length with uh, Dr. Terry Grossman, the co-author with Ray Kurzweil of Fantastic Voyage, Live Long Enough to Live Forever. And they uh, they talk about the potential beneficial effects and beneficial uh, implications of nanotechnology. And we're seeing a lot of this in the news uh, in those fields always. Uh, but I just wanted to pick out a couple of stories. And there was one in particular that has implications in cancer research and uh, cancer curing, as a matter of fact, uh, or elimination of it from inside the body out, I guess is a better way to describe it. Um, but implications for all disease, actually, uh, it uh, it appears. And, you know, this uh, this thing that... Uh, that Terrence and Ralph and Rupert are talking about, and that Ralph and I talked about again today. You know, you have to remember that that, uh, that talk that we just heard was seven years old. It's from 1998. And seven years is a long time. And uh, some of the things that, uh, that were said back then, we now have the benefit of hindsight uh, to uh, uh, 
to view those statements. And, you know, these guys are right on. Terrence, uh, who died in the year 2000, was so far ahead of his time. I mean, the stuff that he said about the music industry seven years ago uh, is uh, finally uh, becoming apparent uh, in the mainstream, and people are starting to recognize what was going on for a long, long time in the underground. But Terrence was uh, tied into this stuff long, long ago. And although they, in this particular piece, appear to uh, take a lot of stabs at one another. They, they actually all end up in the same place, and all of their ideas and all of their research and all of their theories sort of fit quite well together. And uh, if you actually listen to a lot of the other stuff that they've done, it comes out quite, uh, quite clearly. Uh, in the big picture, once you uh, get familiar with, uh, with with the with the the full scope of their output, at any rate, one of the one of the main topics that comes up is this idea of uh, what Ralph calls a bifurcation, and this is a mathematical term for. Uh, what uh, dynamicists call a cusp. Uh, but the bottom line is what it means is a shake-up of the apple cart. It means enormous change. Uh, change to a system. And usually uh, the more complex the system, the more likely and significant the shift or the bifurcation and you see it in your own life you know we see it in our own lives when uh, when things get shaken up and you never know when that's going to happen oftentimes it does happen when things are very complicated uh, but regardless, these things are reflected throughout different levels of our universe. And if you remember the conversation that we had with Nassim Haramein just a few weeks ago, uh, this is no longer the realm of woo-woo, uh, New Age hocus-pocus. really is being grounded in science for whatever that's worth. I mean, that seems to be the way, as, as, uh, as Ralph put it so keenly uh, during the Trilogues conversation, you know, uh, people are so uncomfortable with their own opinions uh, that they value the dictation uh, from above of authority rather than their own experience. And... This is something that we see throughout. Uh, it's not. It's not just uh, in the West here. We see it throughout our species, and these things can all change though very quickly. And this is what one of the big lessons of history is that nothing lasts. Uh, you know, empires rise and fall. If you look at history, if you look at deep history. 
You know, the earth doesn't even last in its uh, in her form. She changes constantly. The continents have changed and moved. There's always uh, a dynamical system in play. And when you have a system like that, uh, perturbations of the system, and this is the key, this is the the key to this whole thing uh, that they have talked about repeatedly for so many years and now I find myself repeating them because I believe that uh, it's something that has to continue to be repeated is that out of these complex systems uh, perturbations can arise that can and do reform the system entirely and bring about uh, an entirely new system or an entirely new order within the system and sometimes that's something that, that something that can be completely unexpected it's this whole idea of the law of unintended consequences well chaos theory uh, which changed the face of mathematics uh, and is still being accepted only uh, because it has to be, I think. And in many cases, uh, uh, the implications of chaos theory, like the implications of so many different discoveries uh, in mathematics and physics and in the, tec and, and, and in the techn technological real world as well, uh, so many things that have been uh, discovered that have been repressed and held back, marginalized, or uh, discounted because of the tremendous effect that they will have on the status quo. And what is happening is, is that uh, this has been going on for some time. I mean, it, it's been going on for uh, for quite some time. But because we live in these short periods of time, uh, to us, you know, a couple hundred years uh, may seem like a long time, but uh, even the, the short adventure of human history, uh, which goes back maybe 10, 12,000 years of recorded human history, uh, this is just a nod in the perspective of deep time, geologic time, historical time, galactic time, you know. So we're here just for a moment. And the fact that these things are happening while we are here, I think, uh, uh, does speak to the fact uh, and the question uh, that Ralph put to Terence and Rupert. You know, is it a special time? Is it is something different now uh, as opposed to, you know, well, 10,000 years ago, for example, or a million years ago? And the argument is that, yes, there is something special now. And uh, you can argue that either way. Certainly there are arguments uh, that would, uh, would oppose that viewpoint, and I'm and I'm uh, perfectly willing to entertain those. Uh, what I see, though, on the surface of things, 
on the surface of things, what I see is a complexification of everything. Everywhere I look, I see complexification. When I look at technology, that's an easy sell. I don't have to prove that to many people. Technology is getting more and more sophisticated, more and more complex. And at the same time, you could argue that it's getting simpler, too. The simpler, uh, the simplicity uh, is because of a deeper complexity. Uh, our social and geopolitical situations, extremely complex and getting more and more so every day. Our religious assumptions and ideas and difficulties, extremely complex. Business, environment, education, health. You know, uh, everywhere you look, we are seeing extremely complex situations arise. Extremely complex systems. And in those systems, in those situations, bifurcations become more and more probable and more and more catastrophic in the sense of uh, uh, the change of the system. You know, the, 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 the catastrophic change doesn't necessarily have to mean uh, that it's bad, quote-unquote. So, anyway, this stuff is going on, and I see it on the surface of things, this increase in complexity. And I think it's pretty difficult to argue against that, uh, that uh, the universe, or at least our little corner of it, the one that we have the most uh, data from, planet Earth, and the space around our planet, things are getting more and more complicated more and more complex and the second thing that seems to be present is that the complexification uh, the rate of increasing complexity is getting faster too so in other words, there are many, many different curves right now that if you propagate them and you continue to look at where they'll go if they continue their trends into the future, well, you have exactly what Ralph, Terrence, Rupert, and many others talk about. You get cusp, change, a shift, the opportunity for a redefining of the system. And that seems to be where we are now. Uh, what it's redefined to, where it goes from, is still up in the air, I guess. Uh, it should be nice to, uh, uh, to see things work out in a manner um, 
better than the than the situation that we have right now. We'll be back. We'll talk more about this in a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit, 89.5 FM.
to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. Yeah, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, Columbia, 89.5 FM. And we're back with you here. And it's about one one thirty-five or so. On Tuesday morning, 16th of August. All right, uh, during the break there, we listened to uh, Throw It All Away, and I was thinking of uh, this idea of uh, of bifurcation, this idea of cusps, and the idea that history does not move in a slow curve, uh, yet, uh, but moves in sort of a step-like fashion. In other words, it stays along a certain plateau for uh, a certain amount of time and sort of meanders up or down, maybe, or whatever, but it stays in the same general uh direction and level for example and then boom something happens and it punches it up to the next level and sometimes it punches it down uh, but uh, always uh, it bootstraps itself up uh, to higher and higher levels again levels of complexity and we're seeing that now uh, everywhere we look Uh, but these these changes can be anything and as see this is why the probability uh, of a singularity it's another word uh, that gets thrown around uh, when we're talking about this sort of stuff Uh, and that's a word that Ray Kurzweil uses but uh, uh, a word that Terence used and a word that modern science uses when they describe um, things like uh, the event horizon of a black hole or uh, the beginning of their particular mythology, the Big Bang, began with a singularity, they call it. So, uh, these cusps can be caused when when, when the system is really complex like it is now and we have all of these different systems that are all complex and that all participate so greatly in the entire system in the overarching system well the opportunity for a uh, uh, a catastrophic occurrence becomes greater and greater in other words it can come from many different areas and have the same effect or have similar effects and this is the situation we find ourselves in now you know technology this is one that everybody is worried about 
And it's one that we should be worried about with good reason. Uh, because technology is being developed now that, uh, that makes many, many things that used to be impossible possible. And so when you have a situation like that, the question becomes, well, how do you utilize that technology? And this is the dilemma that we find ourselves in. I'm working on another show with Joseph Chilton Pierce, and that's a name you haven't heard on the program for a while. Uh, Joe's health hasn't been the greatest over the last uh, six months or so, but he's doing well now, and we're going to do another show, and we've been talking about doing this show called Technology and the Heart. And the idea that as we move into these ever greater and greater technological advancements, that it is imperative that we move there with focus on the heart. Uh, because this is the only way that we will survive our, our, uh, our own technology. We've already seen what the results of technology without wisdom can do, not only in terms of warring. We just had the 60th year anniversary of the atomic weapon usage in Japan, and certainly devastating in uh, tremendously moving events that hopefully have taught lessons uh, to the generations that have followed. It's hard to say at this point. So far, it appears that uh, as ugly as things have been and are, we've been been able to keep. Uh, keep those weapons in check. And it's imperative that we continue to do that, I think. But uh, at any rate, uh, technology is, uh, is moving well past things like nuclear technology. I've always sort of thought, uh, sort of thought that the nuclear card is always played right out in front of the public to keep the focus there. The nuclear technology has, for the most part, been the same for a couple, three decades. I mean, the, the real advanced nukes came in, uh, in the 70s and in the early 80s. And... I mean, for the most part, the technology, once you have it, I mean, you can make bigger bombs and you can make more accurate missiles and this sort of thing, but the bottom line is uh, the, the technology is sort of passe. It's been around for a long time. Uh, but there are new technologies that aren't as sophisticated and don't require uh, the manufacturing and, and uh, infrastructure, or don't have the, the infrastructure requirements uh, of creating nuclear weapons. You know, it, it requires quite a bit of... Uh, manufacturing capability to 
to machine uh, certain components of nuclear weapons. It's one of the big reasons why not everybody can do it. But now, technology is availing all of these different kinds of uh, things, th things that, uh, uh, that are not spoken about. And any one of those things uh, might uh, cause a butterfly effect, uh, as we were talking about earlier. And it can be a butterfly effect either way. You know, technology can go either way. I mean, if some guy in his garage figures out a way uh, to uh, simply release and recover energy safely, cleanly, and uh, can be replenished, I mean then the game's over because all of a sudden everybody becomes self-sufficient basically as long as you can proliferate the information and the technology is not difficult you know it's got to be something that anybody can do otherwise it's going to be grabbed hold of and uh... and made into a a financial instrument but uh... we have environmental situations that could tip at any moment and who knows what the outcome of that might be? Certainly an upsetting of the current system. An asteroid could smash the planet. We know that's happened before. All these things have happened before. There's no new thing under the sun, it is said. So, anything can happen. And the more complicated a situation gets the higher the likelihood for some sort of event like that to occur regardless of where it comes from and this is a situation that we find ourselves in now and you can see it everywhere you look and uh... Roop and uh, Terrence and Ralph were, were, were talking about it very clearly seven years ago and there are lots of people talking about it clearly today <coughs> you know uh, pardon me but one of the most interesting things or the most uh, profound things that I that I got out of the talk tonight is uh, something that Terrence said about clarity his idea that this is one of the things that we have to be pushing for is clarity of, of, of thought of idea of uh, speech and of the memes that we push out into society you know he makes the point that if you if you jump on a uh, a political cause or bandwagon of some sort without clarity well your intention uh, has done no good whatsoever if uh, you did not have a clear picture of what that group or organization uh, really was up to in the beginning and this happens all over it happens in all of our lives I agree with Terrence that we have to strive for clarity and the way we do that maybe is to push the envelope of communication to try to get better at communicating we all could do that myself included all of us 
and by pushing the envelope of communication and language, trying to evolve our language, one of the things that Ralph and I talk, talked about today was uh, this idea of a visual language and pushing language toward the visual. And uh, it's something that we'll certainly talk about with Allison and Alex Gray in just a couple weeks. But this is possibly uh, one of the uh, one of the ways that technology can be uh, a help to us uh, by helping us to uh, to move our language and our communication forward. Obviously, the internet is. Uh, as Terence like, uh, liked to say, a boundary-dissolving agent. The Internet dissolves boundaries. There's no question about it. No matter who you are, we've talked about this before, no matter where you are, you now have the opportunity to find information, the opportunity to find others like yourself, uh, the opportunity to uh, create art and share it, and to do this at a level uh, that is now planet-wide at the stroke of a key. So the Internet is one of these boundary-dissolving agents uh, that has been brought to us by technology, just as the neutron bomb and scalar weaponry have been brought to us by technology. So... Interestingly, uh, we are walking the tightrope, and uh, the question is, which way do we fall? Or does it end up just in between, as always, just more of the same? We muddle through. Very interesting and very curious time to be alive, that's for sure. Next week, uh, I'll be gone, but we'll have somebody here sitting in for me, and I'll have something fun prepared for you all to listen to, all right? Okay, enjoy the week until then, and I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. In the meantime, enjoy your life and make the best of it. Take care. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. This is from the movie soundtrack Donnie Darko. Have you ever seen this movie? But a friend of mine gave me this. It's a birthday gift. Anyway, this movie called Donnie Darko, and uh, this is a great cover of a great song, and I feel like playing it tonight. All right, one more time. This is Mike. Been nice, and I'll talk to you all in a couple weeks, and I hope you have a great time between now and then. Yeah.